Happy holidays, everyone. Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 418. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living interview series, our guest today is Mary Lynn, curator of cultural and linguistic revitalization for the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. As a matter of fact, we're listening to some Smithsonian folkways recordings of a harvest song and the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage Music from South New Guinea series. Mary Lynn discusses with us how indigenous languages are linked to health, education, and employment, as well as the vital connection they provide to the continuity of knowledge and cultural practices. Mary Lynn also tells us how speakers of endangered and minoritized languages are engaged in innovative efforts to reclaim them, thus revitalizing and drawing on examples from several resilient communities, including unwritten languages. One of the examples of an unwritten language that we'll discuss is the language of Chukis. Mary Lynn will hear some Chukis spoken to her by my son, Avery Vogelzang, which we'll also do during our interview. And now, just to give you a sense of this language. I will tell you, too, that Chukis isn't a language that Mary Lynn is focused on. However, it is one of the languages that could easily be in need of linguistic revitalization, as it is spoken by a very small population in the Federated States of Micronesia. Napangeri esemak fasungtuk teoransuk nonakewe pukfen. According to the 2000 census, there are about 45,000 people worldwide who speak Chukis. Chuk is among the Federated States of Micronesia, where Koch Ryan, Yapis, Pompeian, and Chamoro are spoken. Chukis, for example, is not a written language, only transcribed in scriptures. That, of course, is my son, Avery Vogelzang, speaking a brief bit of Chukis, but will now be joined by Mary Lynn, Curator of Cultural and Linguistic Revitalization for the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. Mary Lynn, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Paul. It's nice to be here. I have my son, Avery Vogelzang, who's joining us today. He speaks a language that is, uh, it's known as Chukis, and he's got a question for you later in the program, and then we're going to actually hear him speak a little Chukis, so I thought that might be fun, but I wanted to start, Mary Lynn, by just telling you I love your job title, uh, Curator of Cultural and Linguistic Revitalization. I, I think that's that, that says a lot. I, I really enjoy working with Smithsonian because I love all of these titles. But tell us what that means and, and what you do at Smithsonian, particularly with the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. Yes. Well, thank you. Um, the, the, the key in that is that I'm in the Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. Uh, our mission statement includes to promote the greater understanding and sustainability of cultural heritage. Um, and we do that in a variety of ways, through research, through education, and importantly, through community engagement. I think that's one of the most exciting things about working at the Smithsonian is really uh, the, the time and emphasis that is given to us um, and, uh, to work directly with communities and really to listen to them. Um, 
part of, of sustaining cultural heritage, of course, is being a champion uh, for diversity. And, of course, my work is in linguistic or language diversity throughout the world. My concentration actually was in Native North American. I worked with a lot of tribes and nations in Oklahoma, um, of which there are many. I did that for many years and then branched out a little more throughout the United States. And then when I came to the Smithsonian, I started working worldwide as well. Um, in the same type of things, I work in research. Uh, the research I do is really focused on grassroots revitalization or reclamation and maintenance uh, uh, efforts. And by grassroots, I really mean those that come from the bottom up that aren't part of uh, language state policies or large public education initiatives um, in that way. So what are people on the ground in their communities wanting to do? What are they having trouble doing? And what are some of the innovative ways that they're coming up with that are solving some uh, problems um, of language transmission either in their own communities, uh, but a lot of times these are issues that every community has worldwide. So really looking at those. Um, and then also the, from that research, trying to solve problems that can feed directly back into communities as well. I like research for research's sake, but I really love research that feeds back into solving problems. And then, of course, general education as well. Uh, well really into educating the next generation of community linguists and language practitioners and activists. So we do training programs. We have a large uh, institute that we work with Nankai University in China for uh, training uh, Tibetan, but also other minority nationalities in language documentation, uh, uh, how people can promote their language in their own communities um, as well. And then, of course, as being part of the Smithsonian, I love being engaged with the general public as well and helping educate people about the importance of language diversity, the importance of these small languages, the importance of learning another language if you don't come from a smaller language community as well. And um, that gives me a lot of hope when I see people listening to that because we need, if we're going to have continued language diversity in the world, we need safe places for people uh, to speak the languages and hopefully more bilingualism in the United States, especially in the future. Thank you for that. I just think this sounds like such interesting work that you do. I, I dug up a few facts that mm -hmm. I, I found in my research of, of the subject and, and of you, and I learned that it really as we speak now, more than 600 of the languages that were known to have existed at the end of the 20th century are no longer spoken. And right now there are 457 living languages, what they're referred to as living languages, that have fewer than 10 native speakers. So I'll just give you kind of a personal reference. My family immigrated to the United States from Holland, and really through assimilation and other things, they, they lost kind of their native tongue. They, they, they don't speak Dutch any longer as a, as a family. Certainly the Dutch language wasn't lost, but what does it mean to these individuals and then to our society when a language is lost kind of from a heritage standpoint for a okay. family? From a heritage perspective of a family, the the first one is just very, very personal. Mm -hmm. If you can't speak um, 
to your mother. <laughs> For example, if your mother is elderly and um, has dementia, oftentimes uh, they start to speak in the language they're most comfortable with if they're an immigrant, right? And a lot of times their children cannot understand them, you know, cannot fully participate in their lives because they may be able to understand I'm hungry or let's have this for dinner, but not when they really start talking about maybe their childhood or their emotional state in a, in a language. So, I mean, that's a personal uh, family strength and caregiving mm-hmm. And also just a lot of younger immigrant kids not being able to understand their grandparents at all. What we're seeing today is a huge, the fastest shift in the United States of immigrant uh, uh, kids shifting to English. We have the stereotype that they're not, but in reality, the numbers show a far different. um, So at least 72% of second generation, those are the children of the original immigrants, right? prefer to speak English. And so they just don't speak the other language, right? Their heritage language. And that cuts them from their grandparents and being able to talk and share. And we know how important that grandparent to child, grandchild relationship is and forming, you know, really great adults. (laughs) So um, it is shifting. We are losing those connections with traditions that people love and they try desperately to get back uh, in later generations and on a non-personal basis well (laughs) you know if we keep people from keeping all of these world languages that that are present in the United States but then we want them to somehow desperately learn in a classroom setting Spanish and French and German and you know maybe Japanese and Chinese as you know young adults, you know, we're really doing ourselves a big disservice for one thing, um, to lose all that information and then try to gain it back. But we lose, you know, an upper hand in trade if you can't negotiate in somebody's language and politics. If you don't understand, you know, you understand people better if you, you know, can speak their language. So we lose a lot as a nation um, if we don't uh, foster retaining heritage languages. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk then generally beyond just this personal <laughs> kind of uh, direction and, and tell us what, what are some of the efforts that are, are underway to combat threatened languages? Well, I can talk about some really big ones and then we can talk about some smaller mm-hmm. ones. So I think the most impressive is the, what's called the breath of life approach now. And um, this approach was started um, unconsciously really by two people who a lot of your listeners may have heard in the news, especially recently around American Thanksgiving, the Passamaquoddy are often brought up as being the people that the the pilgrims supposedly had uh, the first Thanksgiving feast with. And then the Miami or Miami uh, tribe as well. So what happened in these situations is that uh, younger people from both of those um, had never heard their language. In the case of Miamia, nobody had spoken. There hadn't been a fluent first language speaker since the 1960s, early 1960s, and for the Passamaquoddy for about 150 years, actually. Um, And 
In the case of Miyamiya, Daryl Baldwin was a young man. He um, wanted to learn about his language, and when he started looking at documents in his language, he realized he couldn't read them because they were in linguistic ease. As a linguist, I could read what they were written in and the technical terminology for describing language phenomena, but he couldn't read them. Um, he wasn't trained as a linguist. He was a, a you know, he was a construction worker, I think, at the time. It was a young family. And they uprooted. They went to University of Montana, where he got a master's degree in linguistics so he could read the language. He started working with a linguist, um, uh, David Costa, who was a graduate student at the time. And so, consequently, uh, Daryl and his wife started trying to use the language in their home with their young children. And uh, then they ended up with two more children. And the younger, the older children were also using it with the younger children. And what you end up, and the, there's a parallel story in the in the Passamaquoddy with uh, Jesse Littledoe. Um, you know, they ended up with children in their home that could be considered definitely uh, fluent first language speakers of the language again. So we really saw a, a language really come back to life in a very small way at first, but both of these, these groups of people started working with their communities, not trying to do, not trying to create new generations of speakers right away. They just knew that wasn't possible with the resources, but really uh, looking at their language, how it works, comparing it to similar languages, because there were a lot of gaps in vocabulary, what you could do with the language, really laying the groundwork in the community, really working to strengthen the community so that when they could introduce language more, you could, you know, they would be ready for it. Working with uni local universities um, in really meaningful ways to uh, to help strengthen the language teaching as well. So, in consequence, in Miamia, there there's handfuls. I mean, there's, I don't know the numbers, but it's inspiring of really young, active learners and new, what would be considered new speakers. Um, I have sat in Washington, D.C. and heard, uh, a, you know, a handful of young kids from Miami University of Ohio speaking in Miamia. So these are very hopeful. It's long-term. It took 500 years to see these languages decline to that point. So it'll take generations to rebuild them, right? But there is hope, and that's given hope to small languages all around the world. On the other end of that are other large programs, like, for example, the Language Nest. And these were started, you know, 20, 30 years ago, Hawaiian and Maori, um, to work with their um, small children to do uh, preschool immersion. And again, the parents were usually new speakers or second language learners that were doing this, um, creating these safe places to really start with young kids and move up. In the case of Maori in Hawaii, there were a, there were elder speakers as well to um, help them out. And these have both bloomed into um, really large educational programs, and we see new generations of speakers um, in those cases. But that idea of parental control, uh, creating safe places for speaking the languages starting with the very young is another approach that's really that's really showing promise throughout the world. And then there's everything in between uh, from, you know, increasing signage, what we call um, language la landscape, so having a rich language landscape around you so people can see their language um, here and there. 
the rise of indigenous and minoritized film and video, especially with, with um, you know, handheld cameras, we're just seeing so much of young people taking control of their stories and really using it, uh, um, you know, to get uh, their language out there. So you, there's everything in between. And I think even the smallest effort is really impactful in the long term. I want to switch gears for just a moment and uh, kind of go in mm-hmm. that uh, South Pacific Hawaiian Maori direction. And okay. uh, I'm going to invite my son, Avery Vogelsang, to join us and have him speak a little chookies for you. And I thought, this probably qualifies as one of those smaller languages uh, that you're referring to. Chukis, for example, is not a written language. So I'm going to ask Avery to speak a little Chukis for you. That just means, good afternoon, Mary. Thanks for joining us today. Um, so for really all of our listeners out there who don't know where Guam is, mm-hmm. who, you know, I was just like that about two years ago. I had no idea where Guam or Chuuk or any of these places were. Mm-hmm. It's in the Pacific, and Guam is kind of in the middle. So Guam acts as this this hub for all of these different islands, for all of these different cultures to come in. And I thought it was really interesting what you were saying before, Mary, about how a lot of the second generation, when they come to a westernized culture, they start to lose those language skills and all of those cultural things. Um and another interesting thing about Chukis is that it's not a written language. It's only written in scripture. So in like the Bible and in other religious books. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd wonder, I just wanted to know if you would comment on some of those languages that are unwritten, which may be lost, and what's being done to preserve them. How are they being preserved? Okay, yeah. Well, first, congratulations. I think it's really great that you're learning the language, and and uh, and and thank you for using it publicly as well. That's always a big step. Absolutely, <laughs> anytime. Um, I think first thing is that if people need to know that um, languages that don't have a, a long written tradition or no writing tradition are still legitimate languages. There's nothing lesser about an unwritten language. And in fact, until very recently in human history, I mean, has most of the languages of the world were not written. Um, so, so I think that we need to, to not think, to really think of these as, you know, you can do everything in an unwritten language that you can do in a written language, including ending up writing it, right? So there's a couple things that, um, you know, when, when a community decides that they don't want to write their language, and some communities make this decision, um, then what, or they make a decision that it's um, too controversial to do right now, and they need to work on keeping the language um, really vital it, while they work those things out. And one of the ways they do that is really shoring up those places where the language, the spoken language is really the strongest to keep them, um, keep those situations very vital. Um, one of those, of course, is religious um, and ceremonial use. Uh, storytelling, really trying to strengthen traditional kind um, uh, how people really had fun in the language, right? Because people will definitely shift to more modern forms of entertainment. So storytelling, traditional theater, these kinds of efforts. And then, of course, uh, 
traditional economies, keeping people in place, a lot of the unwritten languages are often the most vulnerable ec- uh, people in economic situations as well. So um, if people can make a living in place doing traditional farming, doing traditional uh, cloth weaving, uh, pottery, uh, basket weaving, whatever it is, and make money from that, um, then that really helps unwritten languages. And and one of our large initiatives at CFCH, uh, the Cultural Industries Initiative, um, uh, is focused on that relationship there. Um, now, there's other really more modern ways of working with unspoken, uh, unwritten languages. Uh, I have a, a young friend, Yula, she's from the Kroskavs uh, community, which is a Tibetic language, a very small community, and they do not write the language. And when she was going to school in the United States, she started sending little video ta- videos that she made on her camera, I mean, on her phone, and sending them back through the Chinese program WeChat. And what she found out is that they were spreading like <laughs> virally through her community. And uh, people started really looking forward to it. So she started systematically making these for her community. And and they became, you know, the entertainment. They become the really part of the new oral literature for that community. And I think that's a very good way of, of keeping uh, oral traditions alive. The other thing is that even if there's not a standardized writing system or it's widely used, I bet there's probably a lot of young Chukis. I know there's a lot of young Chamorans and certainly Hawaiians and people that are texting in the language. Texting is actually a really safe place where you don't have to worry about spelling <laughs> and you don't have to actually even worry about having complete grammar, right? Um, you And what we're seeing is that a lot of the language is is really being used by young people in texting that adults were not aware of how creative they are being and therefore that's a really good sign that the language mm. is alive. That's how actually how I stay in touch with most of my friends from Chuuk is Facebook Messenger. <laughs> so there you go. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So I think that you know the whereas some older generations might decry the use of texting as ruining written languages, I think it's actually one of the best things for uh, communicating in really small, in, you know, endangered or unwritten languages, actually. I'm certainly grateful for it. <laughs> Good. We are with Mary Lynn. Mary Lynn is the curator of cultural and linguistic revitalization at the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and cultural heritage. And Mary, you specialize in work with indigenous communities to sustain and revitalize endangered language. And I've got a question about some of these indigenous languages and how they might be connected even to health and education and, and even employment. How does how does language have, have some relationship with some of these other areas? Um, that's a really good question. And um, for years, language practitioners, outside linguists were noticing effects, but there wasn't any um, really systematic documentation of this, but there is now more and more um, uh, scientific studies that, um, or systematic quantitative studies that are showing really dramatic effects um, of language 
and that how it can combat some of these really large ills that societies have and that seem very overwhelming to us um, um, as a whole. Like, how do we solve these massive inequality problems that surface in physical ways? So, for example, you know, indigenous um, and minoritized communities around the world have higher rates of suicide, the suicide rates in Native North America are just astounding. Um, you know, addiction issues as well, but other health-related issues such as diabetes, cardiovascular issues, um, all of these um, are related to um, socioeconomic, uh, um, uh, you know, discrimination policies. There's good good sh- uh, studies out there that show um, negative. Uh, health effects from the people who were um, went to boarding schools, and we see that not just in Native North America, but in other areas of the world where where uh, children are taken from commu- from their communities and sent to boarding schools. So, um, so what we're seeing is that language programs have some immediate mitigating effects, and it's not just because they're learning the language, but through learning the language, they're connecting into their communities better and in in a deeper fashion. They're reconnecting um, with traditional health uh, and life ways. They're reconnecting with traditional spiritual ways um, as well. And these seem to be having really mitigating effects, and we're seeing uh, seeing that systematically now. Um, The other thing is, through education, we are definitely seeing, and Miami University and the Miami uh, uh, Language Center is really working to document this. So the Hawaiian programs are documenting this, and, and so we're getting good, good data coming in. The, the kids who are taking language classes, it doesn't have to be a full immersion. It doesn't have to be from preschool through high school. Even just the community classes, what we're Seeing is that the kids who are involved in these uh, language, definitely cultural activities as well, are graduating high school at a higher rate, they're entering college at a higher rate, and graduating from college at a higher rate. So really what we're seeing is a tremendous educational effect. And again, it's not just learning the language or just connecting with, um, with a culture, it's also feeling comfortable and legit and legitimized in a learning environment, which then helps them become, you know, more literate in usually two languages, <laughs> and you know, it just helps them being a better citizen in the end in this way because they're more comfortable in an education setting, um, whether that's traditional education or Western education. So I think that we're I and then you know we're also seeing that bilingual individuals. So when we get to the point where we're creating bilingual uh, individuals, um, then we see that in studies of them, we see that they generally have better self-control. They have better social and communication skills. And this isn't just indigenous uh, youth. This is bilingual youth anywhere. Um, It looks like bilingualism can um, help offset the, um, the onset of Alzheimer's. Um, and there was a recent study out um, uh, that was really interesting that <laughs> said that monolingual adults just hearing language diversity around them, so like when I'm 
on the subway in Washington, D.C., and I hear a Haitian speaker, I hear a, a Somali speaker, I hear languages from around the world. It's actually good for my brain just to even hear other languages. So, I mean, there's a lot of really positive effects for um, just being open to languages, uh, other languages around you. The other interesting connection that I found in my in my research was this uh, connection between um, biodiversity and mm-hmm. and I mentioned the Federated States of Micronesia. These are almost considered biodiversity hotspots, and that's where the islands of Chuuk are located, the islands mm-hmm. of Pompeii and Koshrai. And I found that uh, that some of these islands even have active biodiversity programs that you actually sign a document before you travel into them. And and language is critical to the environment and critical to the understanding of conserving some of these biological hotspots. So tell us about that connection. Okay, well, I think this is a... um, Again, this is a worldwide problem with with climate change. Mm -hmm. And um, we are struggling to find, um, well, we're, we're struggling to, to activate global responses, but, and also struggling with local responses to, to climate change as well. And so people are looking more and more at traditional uh, environmental knowledge. That, in, that knowledge, whether it's of, of plant knowledge, of knowledge of how to... Um, hunt but also care for caribou herds or fishing fish populations you know how to do controlled burns how to rotate crops or what the traditional crops were that were rotated and and sustaining for that environment all of this type of information can be passed on in a dominant language but tends not to be passed on or not as thoroughly or not the reasons behind so it tends to get more and more diluted and finally disappear. The, the, that knowledge gets passed down in the local, in the indigenous minoritized language in most cases. So keeping that link alive is really important for those communities. And the idea is for all of us in the end. So, um, for example, I think I heard on... Uh, the BBC this morning, <laughs> um, as I was thinking about our talk this afternoon, that um, they said something like 94% of the plants um, species have not been studied for human med- medicinal uses. Now, that's Western studies, right? But that is a lot of of knowledge, because usually people know local medicinal uses, right? Um, that's a lot of knowledge to be gone from the world if we lose these languages, right? Um, but also think of it in this way. So stepping back from environment to just kind of give an idea that really hit me the other day. I was going through a, an exhibit of um, Osage wedding dresses in, in Norman, Oklahoma. And it was pointed out to me by the curator, Dan Swan, that, that women in, uh, in Europe uh, had, had had silk ribbons for, you know, 300 years. And we made bows with them. 
you know, we we interlace them at the top of, you know, clothing. You know, we 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 put them, we hung them in in uh, sashes. We did a lot of things with with silk ribbons. But when the Osage were first handed as a trade item silk ribbons, they did something wildly different with them. Right? They made these injured, they cut them up and re-put them back together in these intricate patterns that are just stunning visually. And nobody had ever thought to do that in Europe. Now, you know, bows are equally as good as, as Osage ribbon work. There's no difference. But the thing is, is that that's a really small but important example of if we take away a lot of these languages, right, that are associated with these cultures, and through cultures we tend to maybe look at things differently or approach a problem in a way a different way, then we're really severely limiting the way that we can approach some of these environmental problems as well. Um, if we, you know, if we don't. I think we're 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 if we're, we'd only have ribbons and bows, and we would never have Osage ribbon work in that way. And then, I, you know, I want to point out that uh, in August, a, a group of young um, Aboriginal uh, youth from all over Australia uh, created what's called the Imagination Declaration of the Youth. That it got passed out in Parliament in Australia. I mean, it, and it got read there. And one of the things they said, this is direct from them, is that we can design the solutions that lift islands up in the face of rising seas. We can work on creative agricultural solutions that are in sync with our natural habitat. And we can re-engineer schooling. We can invent new jobs and technology. And we can unite around kindness. We are not the problem. We're the solution. Mm. And I think that is so true. It's <laughs> beautiful also. Mm-hmm. That's really powerful. Thank you for sharing all of that. There, there's a real connection. This is just fascinating. I could talk to you for, for quite a <laughs> while, Mary, Mary Lynn. But I, I just have one final question for you. Media today is interested in telling the stories of language revitalization. But you hear these terms like dead languages or extinct languages. And so tell us about the difference between the use in media and this uh, area of linguistic revitalization that, that you focus on. And and then I also read about the term sleeping languages or reclaimed mm-hmm. languages. So talk a little bit about that for us. People who come from these languages and are involved in language reclamation or language maintenance, we don't use the word dead or extinct. <laughs> um, and and the examples from Miamian, from Passamaquoddy, from Hebrew, um, uh, from so many languages show us that um, that languages can come back. You know, so the. The, this definition that we use is really that a language is not dead. A language is sleeping, okay? If it has two criteria, one is that it has any sort of documentation, right, or resources. And this could, you know, resources can be, you know, people who just remember the language or, um, you know, but if it has documentation. And the second one is if it has a community who identifies with it. Um, and if that's the case, it may take another 500 years to bring it back to life, but we say that it's sleeping. And um, because it is hopeful, we, we, and because if we 
look, if we look at it, the numbers are usually just based, you know, if we say that language is dead, that's usually based on fluent first language speakers. And that overlooks all of the active learners, all of the new speakers, all of the semi-speakers, all of the rememberers, all of the passive bilinguals, all of the people who may not yet speak at all but are actively working um, in revitalizing their communities, other parts of their traditions, and working on the language. And we need to look at that and not focus on the negative, but focus on the positive that's happening in these communities. Well said, and, and it's a nice place for us to, uh, to leave off uh, today, Marilyn. Thank you so much for your time today and for all your hard work. These languages are important. It's a uh, uh, fascinating work that you're doing. So happy holidays to you. Well, thank and, you. Uh, we'd love to catch up to you again sometime, but thank you for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you so much, and thank you for being interested in this question. Oh, it's very interesting. I, I love this, and so appreciate your time. Mm-hmm. Thank you. My thanks to Mary Lynn from the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage, and my thanks to the Smithsonian for all they do to support the show. Of course, my thanks to all of you, our wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please keep your emails coming with great show suggestions and ideas at info at notold-better.com. Happy holidays, everybody, and remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show.